Please remain standing, and today we actually have two Old Testament readings. One is Psalm 67, sometimes referred to as the missionary psalm, reminding us that even in the Old Testament, God's purpose was for Israel to be a light to all of the nations, and for in Israel, through the children of Abraham, for all the families of the earth to be blessed. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Amen. And now let's also read the very ending of the book of Second Kings. Second Kings chapter 25, verses 27 to 30. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month on the 27th day of the month, Abel Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments. And every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table, and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, according to his daily needs, as long as he lived. Amen. Now let's turn to our sermon text, the very end of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 28, verses 11 to 31. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case, but because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you since It is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and 
None of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Amen. You may be seated. When I was in seminary, I had classmates who were involved with a church planting network called Acts 29, uh, and they called their various church plants Acts 29 Churches. Uh, and so when I, when I heard about this, it didn't register for me at first what it meant. Um, but one day I finally started thinking, you know, I should look up what happens in Acts chapter 29. Uh, I should figure out what, this, what that chapter is talking about so I can find out, you know, what's so significant to these guys, what's so important about church planting. Maybe I could learn something here. And then, of course, I realized, wait a second, <laughs> there is no Acts 29. And that, of course, was the point. There are only 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And I, for a second, I was really confused. Like, don't they know? Um, and, and then, of course, it hit me. I see what they're doing here. The book of Acts ends with chapter 28, but the history that's being traced in the book of Acts does not end here. It continues. In fact, the way that Luke ends the book is intended to communicate that this is a continuing history. The church's continuing mission, we might say. Is uh, on it's ongoing. On so on the one hand, Acts is about the completion of something. We we could say that it's about the completion of that um, apostolic um, trajectory that Jesus set out in chapter one. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that program has been carried out here, uh, particularly in, as Paul arrives in Rome. But on the other hand, Acts is very much about the beginning of something. It's about the beginning of the history of the church, a history that Luke does not wrap up with a neat bow at the end of the chapter. Um, Rather, it's almost as though he's inviting us into this history. He's welcoming his readers to find our place in this ongoing work of 
the risen and ascended Lord Jesus through his Holy Spirit in the church today to see that we too, no less than the churches planted by the apostles, are also Christ's church on Christ's mission by Christ's Spirit and for Christ's glory. We are all of us living in the next chapter of this history, and in that sense, we're all Acts 29 Christians. On the last page of many books, you will find neatly printed the words, the end. But on this final page of Acts, you could almost imagine Luke is saying, not the end. Not the end. And that's actually going to be the last of our three headings for this morning. Number one will be not guilty. Number two, not foiled. And number three, not the end. So first, not guilty. Uh, the, the first section you could think of as Luke's kind of closing argument in his case of Paul versus his Jewish opponents. Um, like, a, like a defense attorney kind of laying everything out one last time and saying the defense rests. Um, so, going back to the journey, there's the unexpected detour on Malta because of the shipwreck. Um, then in verses 11 to 16, um, starting out here, they have a much less eventful uh, last leg of their journey uh, to Italy. They're sailing here along the eastern coast of Sicily. It's where Syracuse is. It's on Sicily. Uh, remember, Sicily is that really... A big island in the Mediterranean that, um, if you look at the map, looks like the boot of Italy is kicking it. And so they sail up between the island and the uh, toe of the boot. That's where Regium is. It's right on the toe of the boot of Italy. Um, And then on to the port city of Puteoli, um, which is just a little bit to Rome's southeast. So uh, Italy is kind of slanting this way. Puteoli is down here, and Rome is up to the northwest. Okay, so um, notice how immediately, right away, they make contact with the Christian community uh, there. Um, And you can see what an encouragement this is to Paul, this reassurance of all of Christ's promises, um, that Christ is caring for him, that Christ is with him, that he has now connected him with the church here in Italy. Uh, Remember, this is not like when Paul went to Philippi or Athens, where there were no Christians in those places. Uh, Paul was bringing the gospel to those cities for the very first time. He was pioneering new gospel frontiers, but that's not the case in Rome. There, the gospel had come to Rome uh, through other people years earlier, and so there was already a church there. And this is the background, in fact, for Paul's letter to the Romans, which he had written a few years before, um, at the end of his third missionary journey, um, before his arrest in Jerusalem. He's writing in that letter to a church that was planted years before in a place that Paul has never been, though. And so he's introducing himself to the church there, and he's, he's laying out for them a summary of his apostolic message. Um, and he expresses his hope that one day he's going to meet them soon. And now, that's what's happening. Here at last, that hope of meeting the church in Rome is coming true. And in fact, those Christians in Rome come out to meet Paul, and they go back with him into the city. Um, and so this is continuing that theme that we've been seeing all through Paul's voyage from Caesarea, that um, even though he's a prisoner, Paul keeps being treated with this very high honor in various ways. That, that isn't what you'd expect for a prisoner. And why is that? It's because he is Christ's man. He is Christ's messenger, Christ's servant, Christ's apostle, 
And he's on Christ's mission by Christ's spirit for Christ's glory. Now, in Rome, just as he was in all of his other journeys and in Jerusalem. So one of the first things that he does after getting there to Rome is he sends an invitation out to the leaders, uh, not of the Christian community there, but of the Jewish community, the synagogues, the rabbis. He wants to explain to them right away who he is, uh, what he's all about, and why he's come to Rome as a Roman prisoner. Um, So this is a chance for Paul to kind of set the tone for the kind of relationship he's going to have with the Jewish community there in Rome. It's a golden opportunity because um, so far, his relationship with the Jewish community here doesn't have all the baggage um, that uh, has characterized his relationship with the Jewish leaders in Asia Minor and Macedonia and and in Jerusalem itself. So Paul has gotten to Rome uh, before any kind of messages has arrived, kind of warning them about him. Um, and kind of poisoning the well, so to speak. And so Paul takes this opportunity then to explain, uh, first of all, a few very important basic things about himself. First of all, he wants it's like he wants to say, listen, I am, I am very much one of you, not an adversary working against you. He's trying to <clears throat> express to them, we are, broadly speaking, or at least we can be, on the same team. Uh, there are some conditions to that, of course. Uh, in other words, he, um, imagine them seeing he's coming here as a Roman prisoner. And so the assumption, the natural kind of intuitive assumption would be they, they might have thought, wow, he must have done something really bad. Uh, and Paul is wanting to clarify for them, look, I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our fathers. So I ha- there's no crime I've committed against the Jews. And notice how he's very careful to call them brothers. He speaks of our people Our fathers, repeatedly, in all these different ways, from these different angles, he's building connection here. Um, Just like so many other times when he's spoken to the Jews, this is what he did back in Jerusalem. Um, He's trying to reinforce this basic principle that the gospel message he's about to tell them is not a new novel religion coming from outside. It's not um, coming out of left field to upend the historic faith of Israel. On the contrary, it is the maturing, the full expression, the completion of true Judaism, true Old Testament faith, and total continuity with the covenantal history of Israel. Okay, so the next next thing they might think is, okay, um, well, let's just grant for the moment that he hasn't <clears throat> done anything against Judaism, but obviously he's committed some kind of crime against the Romans because he's under... Roman custody. And Paul says, no, no. In fact, the fact is that the Romans who actually examined me, and uh, like Felix and Festus, they, they wanted to set me free. Um, they knew that I'd done nothing wrong. The only reason I'm, I was kept in custody is because of the objections of, of the uh, Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And so uh, the next thing that, the, that, these, that this community might think is, okay, well, then maybe he is... A turncoat. Maybe he's kind of a, kind of a rat. Maybe he's come here to Jerusalem to um, give Judaism and give Jews a bad name, to turn the Roman government against us, against Jerusalem, against his own people. But again, Paul specifically confronts uh, that potential 
assumption. He says, no, I had no charge to bring against my nation. I'm not here to attack Israel. I am here just defending myself in the gospel of Christ. So those are all the reasons I'm not here. Um, Let me tell you now why I am here. What is this message that I've been teaching all of these years and that I intend now to teach you? What is it really all about? I have asked to see you and speak with you so you can know the real reason for me wearing this chain. Um, that's, that's kind of what he's saying there in uh, verse 20. Um, he, wants, he wants them to know the real reason. You can imagine him, it's very vivid, you can imagine him holding up it's this chain. You, they, they see that he's bound with that chain. He's holding it up, manacled to his wrist. Maybe the other end is still attached to that other soldier who's guarding him. And so it's like he's holding it up and saying, do you want to know why I'm wearing this chain? It is because of the hope of Israel. That's why. It's because of what all of us share in common, because of what all of us have been hoping for for all of these centuries It's finally happened. And I am so determined to tell you all about it, to to bear witness to that great act of God that's taken place, that great fulfillment of all of his promises to us, the the people of Israel, even if it means passing through these kinds of tremendous sacrifices and suffering the loss of my freedom and being under bondage to the Romans to do that. I'm here to bring you this message, whatever it takes. Again, this is very similar to the kinds of claims and arguments that Paul has made in defending his ministry before uh, other Jewish audiences in Acts. Um, here, uh, the Jerusalem community, I mean, the, the Jewish community hasn't gotten word yet about what they're supposed to think about Paul, uh, what the official line is, and so they're, they're being given this kind of uncommon opportunity to evaluate what Paul's saying in kind of a fresh way. Interestingly, though, the, the outcome of that fresh look at Paul's message by this local community of, of the Jews re- resembles, sadly, very closely um, the response of many other communities of his countrymen that Paul has interacted with all over the Greek-speaking world. Some of them believe, but many, many of them do not. It has been the ongoing pattern as the gospel has come to the synagogues around the Mediterranean world. It says, from morning to eat till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. That's the story of the life of Jesus, right? And it's also the story of Jesus' servants, the apostles. And so you might think, oh no. Looks like Paul has come all this way for nothing. He's, he's passed through imprisonment. He's passed through storm and shipwreck, getting to Rome, only to get there and have these people refuse to listen. 
These people who, who had better than anyone else at their disposal the, the, all the riches of the Old Testament prophetic expectation and all of the salvation history of, of the Old Testament times that so clearly culminated in the Lord Jesus. He should have been welcoming this message with open arms. And you can imagine that may have been discouraging for Paul. No gospel preacher wants to have his message ignored and rejected. But by now, Paul has gotten used to this pattern. And this rejection by this Jewish community is not unexpected for him. It's not something he hasn't prepared for. In fact, it's almost like he saw it coming a mile away, as you see in his response. This rejection of Christ by the people of Israel is, in fact a major theme even in Paul's letter to the Romans, written years be- a few years before. Not after this visit, before this visit, at least a couple years before. And in that letter, Paul writes about what? He writes about, think of Romans 11, how many Israelite people were indeed hardened in unbelief against the gospel. Many branches of the covenant tree were cut off. But why was that? Why were those branches cut off the covenant tree? It was so that new branches could be grafted in. Speaking of the Gentile nations. Think of that great thesis statement of Romans in chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's been the pattern of Paul's ministry all the way through the book of Acts, consistently. Um, And consistently, some Jews have believed and many have rejected that gospel message. And so, as a result, each time that's happened, that gospel invitation has been thrown open wide to everybody else in those cities. Paul has turned to the Gentiles time after time. That has borne tremendous fruit in the conversion of many Gentiles around the Greek world. So, Paul's experience here in Rome um, is not unique at all. It's right following the same pattern. But it's also not just unique to this apostolic period either. It's not just unique to the proclamation of the completed gospel of Christ after the coming of Jesus. You look back to the ministries of the Old Testament prophets, they faced fundamentally the same problem for their own messages. They, too, faced, one after another, a mixed response from the covenant people of God, where often the majority was against them. The majority simply did not want to hear what God had to say through his prophets. And that's why Paul quotes Isaiah here, he's saying, listen, guys, you are acting just like Israel in the Old Testament leading up to the exile. This is what has always gone wrong for us Israelites. We won't listen to the word of God. God sent Old Testament Israel prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger, bearing his word, holding out the possibility of repentance and restoration. The hope of, of life and covenant peace with God instead of judgment and hostility and exile. But they would not have it. They would not listen. And so when Isaiah received his prophetic call in Isaiah 6, in that awe-striking vision of the heavenly throne room and the presence of the majesty of the holy, holy, holy Lord God, 
that holy, holy, holy God told Isaiah, you're going to be my messenger to go to preach to these people, but listen, you have to know ahead of time they are not going to hear you. They're not going to listen. And yet, and yet what else does Isaiah say later in his prophecy that the Lord is going to preserve a holy seed? Even there, at the end of Isaiah 6, in that dire prophecy of how Israel is not going to listen, he says there is yet, there is going to be a stump. The holy seed is the stump. And then later in Isaiah, it speaks of how there's going to be a shoot, a, a life, a, a, a living shoot, that new growth coming up out of that stump, which, of course, is also fulfilled in Christ. Well, this, of course, um, is also not the first time that this Isaiah 6 passage has been used in the New Testament because Jesus himself used it to talk about Israel's response to his earthly ministry. For example, and you can see this in Luke's writing, in Luke chapter 8, where he's explaining, or Jesus is explaining why he teaches using parables. Uh, Jesus' coming had, still has, a twofold effect on all people, had a twofold effect on the people of Israel in particular. Some people, it led to repentance and faith, while others, it simply confirmed in ungodliness and rebellion as they hardened their hearts against his coming. And see, what was true of Jesus then continues to be true in the preaching of Jesus by his followers. It's particularly true in this transitional time in Acts, where the kingdom of God was initially expanding beyond the circle of the Jews to include the Gentile world. And so there's this uniqueness of the apostolic era, but it's not entirely unique because really this exact same thing is happening in principle. Every time Christ is preached, even today and even this morning, this is what we're experiencing right now, God's word never comes back void or empty. Isaiah says. It always accomplishes the purpose for which he sent it. That's chapter 55. But it cuts both ways. It's a double-edged sword. Some people's hearts it softens, and some people's hearts it hardens. So the crucial thing for us, whenever we are hearing, whenever we are within earshot of the word of God, is to make sure that we are listening, that we are softening our hearts, that we are giving attention to what he is saying. We need to to pray. The Holy Spirit would help us not to have those dull hearts, those deaf ears and those eyes closed to what God is saying, but that he would soften us, that he would open us to his word, that we would be part of the group that listens, hears, receives, believes, and obeys. There is, you could say, an element of, of tragedy here at the end of this book. As this one last time, the, the Jewish community, this time in Rome, is given the chance to respond in faith to the gospel, and by and large, they simply don't do it. But it's not just tragedy. What's so encouraging to see here is that Christ's plan, Christ's program, laid out from chapter 1, is not somehow, or in any way, stymied by that rejection of Israel. Christ's plan marches on, and it is not foiled. That's the second point here. Not foiled, even even by those dull hearts and deaf ears of the people of Israel, because Christ is building what? He is building his kingdom. He is building the true Israel that is found 
not where you have an ethnic connection to Abraham. It is found wherever people are calling on the name of the Lord. Wherever people are looking to him in faith as the Savior and the Redeemer through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead for sinners. Uh, There's one commentator I've referenced quite frequently in the sermon series, name of Ben Witherington. Um, He describes the ending of Acts as one part triumph and one part tragedy. Triumph as the gospel is proclaimed in Rome, tragedy as Israel once again rejects that message of Jesus. But I I think we're supposed to see here that the triumph far outweighs the tragedy. Christ's plan has not been foiled. His kingdom is, in fact, coming, and it's coming right on schedule. His will is being done just as he intended. Let it be known to you, Paul says, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. This is the great hope of all the missionary endeavors of the church, is that Christ is advancing his kingdom, and people will listen because they are being brought into the fold of the Lord Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, not through mere human effort. God's rejection by the people of Israel does not limit him. It does not limit his plan. Rather, it simply becomes part of the story, part of that history of God expanding his plan in an almighty way to embrace all of the nations of the earth, just as he promised to Abraham, the father of Israel, from the very beginning. We all need to remember, always, that God does not somehow need any one of us or any group of us for his kingdom to work out. We are not indispensable to him. And how often we can take that attitude that we resurrection, or we reformed people, or we orthodox Presbyterians, or we Protestants, or we anything else, ways we identify ourselves, which are very important and good, we can start to see ourselves as indispensable. God really needs us to carry out his plan. The fact is God can do just fine without us. He's not beholden to us. He's not desperate for our approval any more than he was beholden to or desperate for the approval of the Jewish community in Rome, Jerusalem, or anywhere else in the Mediterranean world. Remember Jesus' parable in Luke 14 about that great banquet, that great banquet where all the people who were originally invited ended up giving all kinds of excuses for why they couldn't come. But did that keep the banquet from happening? No, it did not. It just meant that the host threw that banquet open to the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame, to the people in the highways and the hedges, people that you wouldn't necessarily expect it to be there. That rejection of the invitation by the people who seemed like insiders and who felt like insiders, who took for granted their relationship to that host, led to a great expansion of that invitation to people you never would have expected to see in that banquet hall. And the message for us is never assume that because you feel like an insider, that because you know the message, because you've heard it many, many times, because you have received the invitation many times, and because that invitation has been open to you all your life, that just for those reasons you must be good to go. You just can't imagine yourself ever being on the outside looking in. 
But listen, we have to understand that just like for these people, these Israelites in Rome, the important thing is not having the invitation in hand. Not saying, oh, look at this invitation I got. I'm going to frame it and put it on the wall. Look how special I am that I received this invitation. The important thing is that you actually come to the banquet. That is what set apart unbelieving Israel in the time of Jesus and Paul from the faithful remnant of the Jews who did believe and the vast swaths of Gentile Christians who were grafted in to that covenant tree through faith in Christ. They didn't just receive the invitation. They came to the feast. Think of the hymn where it says, Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room? while thousands made a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Let the rejection of Jesus by Israel be a warning to you, to us all. Don't just stare at your invitation. Don't just smugly feel self-satisfied that you're already an insider, that you're already close enough to the kingdom of God. You've got to actually come to the feast. Say, yes, Lord Jesus, I believe. Yes, Lord Jesus, I belong to you. You are my Lord. You are my King. You are the one in charge of me and my life. You're not just a Savior. You are my Savior. And I am not my own. I belong, body and soul, to you. The last thing I want to leave you with is that when we find ourselves squarely and securely in that salvation that comes through Christ, comes through the good news of his finished work for us, we're going to find ourselves in the middle of something else, too. We're going to find ourselves in the middle of an ongoing history. That started long before us and is going to go on long after we're gone. It's the history of the proclamation of that salvation and the spreading of that kingdom. Because remember, Acts 28 28 is not the end of the history of the church, of the work of the Holy Spirit, of the mighty providential oversight of God over his people, of the sovereign reign of the risen, ascended Christ in heaven over his bride and his body all over the world. Yes, this is the end of something, in a sense, but it's also the beginning of something. The beginning of something that has not ended and will not end until Christ comes again. And even that will just be the beginning of an everlasting future. Paul lived, it says, in Rome two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Isn't that a great final phrase? Without hindrance. What a way to end this book. I'm reminded of uh, 2 Timothy 2.9, where Paul is describing his, his second Roman imprisonment, his later, uh, much more dire, final imprisonment before his execution, which is years after this. And he tells that young pastor, Timothy, there, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound, Timothy. The word of God is not bound. It is overflowing 
with energy. It is bursting with life as much today as that day. Without hindrance. That is how God spreads his gospel, his word. That same commentator I mentioned earlier, Witherington, describes this ending, ending as um, open-ended. And he's the one who compares it with 2 Kings 25 that we read earlier, that ending uh, where King Jehoiakim is released from the Babylonian prison. And, and he's honored and he's given hope. And you get this similar sense. This, the story isn't over. Right? It's like this, this coda at the end of all the tragedy of Second Kings that shows, but look, there's hope and there's something more that's to come. God is still working. Israel is still alive. The hope of a son of David has not perished. Others have labored, Jesus says in John 4, and you have entered into that same labor. Jesus has other sheep in other folds, including in this fold of State College, Pennsylvania, in 2023, in this generation, in this place. Christ has included us now in this same great work of making known to our community, in our time, this same grace of God and the forgiveness of sins through the death and resurrection of his son. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us as it threatened to undo Paul, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Because we still today are Christ's people on Christ's mission by Christ's spirit for Christ's glory. And that's the message of the book of Acts. So let's pray. Our great God, we're so thankful for the triumph that so outshines the tragedy coming at the end of this book. We're also so thankful that the end of this book is not the end of the history. Lord, thank you that you have invited us into that history. You have made us part of this great mission of the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would please help us to see that with the eyes of faith in our daily lives as individuals and families and a congregation that we are on this mission that Christ has given to us to be his witnesses, to make him known. We thank you that the word of God is not bound and that people will listen You have guaranteed that. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be bold and zealous to enter into that harvest field and make Christ known with confidence in your sovereign power. And for ourselves, we pray that you would help us always to have soft hearts, to be listeners. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.